Welcome to Love and Compassion, the podcast where we explore different topics that may challenge our current belief systems and the fears that they generate. Our hope is that through dialogue, you, the listener, will be inspired and motivated in new ways on your own journey to living a more loving and compassionate life. Please welcome your host, Giselle Taraba. My guest today is Jaysa Bullock, an occupational therapist who sustained a spinal cord injury while riding a motorcycle that put her on the path to becoming a qualified mindful-based stress reduction teacher, a certified medical Qigong practitioner, and a teacher in training of the Mindful Self-Compassion Program. Today, we're here to talk about her book, Purpose in Paralysis, From Chronic Pain to Universal Gain, which is currently an Amazon bestseller. Thank you, Jaysa, so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Um, I want to begin by saying that I just loved your book. Your book is not just for people experiencing chronic pain. I feel it's for everyone who's trying to connect or reconnect with themselves and remember who they truly are. It's for those wanting to have a greater loving compassion for themselves. And one of the things I love most about the book is that I feel that you have kind of Renee Brown level of honesty. <laughs> you were so raw talking about the emotions that a lot of us feel like envy and jealousy, anger, frustration, and not enoughness, which I resonated with. I was just wondering if you can begin by telling me a little bit about uh, what happened that inspired this book. Yes, well, definitely the biggest thing that happened in my life was the motorcycle accident that um, resulted in a spinal cord injury for me. And that was uh, in August of 2010. And I found what helped me to heal was writing and so I would write reflections or I would write poetry and at that time there was Facebook wasn't big yet there was no Instagram so I would email my reflections and my poetry to friends and family and maybe after a couple months of sending this out to friends and family over email I got a lot of feedback and people said you need to start a blog so I started a blog and it was called Memoirs of a JSA, and that's where I continued to share just expressions. And uh, I had a couple therapists at the time who really encouraged just keep expressing yourself. And I never knew that I was a writer before the accident. It was after that I discovered that I had this gift of writing. And I was really surprised that my blog was so well received. Like so many uh, people visiting my blog in just the first month. And then from there, people were saying, you should write a book. And that was just maybe two or three years after my accident. So that planted the seed. Mind you, I've always wanted to write a book since I was in high school. So I actually began writing my first book in high school called Revelations for a Revolution. It was sharing like my lessons. And I started writing that up until like through university and then I went through a big barrier of self-doubt that actually stopped me. So there is already this desire to share, you know, reflections with the yeah. world. But what really pushed me to do this was because of the mindfulness-based uh, stress reduction program that I took after my accident, it opened me up to seeing myself more and learning that I have been wearing masks for most of my adult life. And that there is so much of who I really am, what I really believe about 
you know, spirituality, just in, 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 just in general, like my beliefs that I don't publicly say out of fear of people getting upset or disappointed. And it just got to this point where it's for the sake of my soul, this book is going to be a homecoming where for the first time in my life, I am going to tell everyone, friends, family, the world, what I really think. Mm -hmm. And so it was, it, that's really what pushed it to the end. It was like, I need to do this for myself before I even have a baby. So I delayed starting a family mm -hmm. to put out this baby for myself, my soul first. I guess you could say that was your first baby. Yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, and it's such a beautiful book. I mean, you use a mix of poetry. Um, you take, I guess, experts from your own journal. So I felt like I was going on this journey with you. There were so many moments where I was able to see myself in it, to see my own journey and the masks that I wear every day. And so I thought that was really, really beautiful. Oh, thank you for sharing. No, no worries. Um, and so I wanted to start with one of the most fascinating things I read in the book was really kind of the question you had asked about whether you feel that your soul chose this accident. Yeah, it just, looking back at how everything happened, it just seemed scripted, like it was all meant to be, and that maybe my soul did choose this, even though I do believe in free will. Uh, so, you know, here's this person, a, a neuro rehab OT, okay? So I'm already trained in neuro rehab, and I'm getting to a point where I'm starting for the first time in my life seeking counseling from the uh, employee wellness program because at 30, I'm already considering my third career change. I had already left OT to be a primary junior teacher, went back to OT. Now I'm thinking of becoming a lawyer. And then, was, and then I had, a, had broken up with every boyfriend I've ever had. Like there was just this dissatisfaction. And now it's like, I'm going to change my career again. And that, counselor told me to get the book mind over mood and it started having me reflect on my thoughts and that's when i realized wow i am full of judgment i judge others i judge myself and i wrote a letter to god <laughs> and i asked god change me help me to be less judgmental of myself and at that time i didn't realize that i was living in my head i only realized i was living in my head after the accident and that accident believe it or not happened three days after that letter so it was wow. three days, <laughs> You're three days back. I'm like whoa i got what i wanted like, not and that's why i felt like i asked it because i really i put it out there to the universe change me help me be less judgmental who knew that three years later i'd become a, a teacher on non-judgment mindfulness mm. and it wasn't until i was doing physio in the hospital as an inpatient, when the physio would always be like, how do you feel now? After this session, how do you feel? Like they would always do some modality and ask me how I felt. And I'd be like, uh, I don't know, I don't know. I never knew because I was never feeling. I was always just thinking, watching other people. I was never in my body. So then it became clear. I was like, wow, this was a perfect story of a person who was never in her body, ignored her body, and then had, a par had paralysis <laughs> as a neuro rehab OT to learn how to be in her body again, feel her body, and learn to stop judging herself. Yeah. So that's why I kind of felt like it was almost like my soul chose this, or my soul asked for this, because it put me back in this track of learning to love myself and be in my body. Mm, which is beautiful. 
you ever feel like you should have put some provisos on the request to God? Kind of like, oh, oh I know. Now I tell people, be careful what you pray for. Yes. One of the things you said in the book was that you talked about how you felt like you were a perfectionist, you had chronic self-judgment, uh, that it was, there was a cool concept of not enoughness. And I feel like that was just kind of describing me kind of in a nutshell. And so I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about how this perfectionism had impacted your life um, and kind of helped you embark on this journey for healing. Looking back, I think it's just, I've always just been conditioned to have value in being quote unquote the best or quote unquote better than other people. Because in elementary school, I graduated at, with the highest achievement award. I got this big trophy. So, you know, there's this validation of my worth with this big trophy. And then when I graduated from high school, I was valedictorian. So that wasn't just about grades. That was being liked because I was picked by teachers and voted by students. So now there's this sense of my value is in being liked by people. And then in undergrad, when I graduated again, I got the highest 10 the top 10 marks in class. So there's this, so I, and then I've always been told like, oh, you're beautiful, you're pretty, you know, there's always guys who like me. So throughout my teens and 20s, my self-worth was always on being better, smarter, prettier, liked. And that just facilitated the sense of keep pleasing people, right? So don't, don't get into confrontation don't argue just as long as people like me i'll continue to feel good i'll continue to be you know valuable as long as people like me so that was when i looking back like well no wonder i've probably been wearing masks since i was young because you know just basically say anything that will please other people even if someone asks how are you doing i'll say what makes them feel comfortable i'm not going to say i'm upset or sad i'll say i'm good and even up until my accident it took two year, two or three years before I finally expressed grief. And that was because of all that therapy I did. And I realized that even when in the hospital, I was putting on masks, being grateful and happy because it made other people feel good. Yeah. And it's interesting when we get our self-worth from external things, we constantly need to have those external things. Otherwise, we don't have any self-worth. That's why it's so important that mm -hmm. self-love and self-compassion has to come from within. Thank you for mentioning therapy. I've definitely gone, and I don't think people do it enough. I think that there's this kind of shame culture behind therapy, and it's very beneficial that you mentioned kind of the, the assistance. Thank you. I agree. Yeah. I wouldn't have done therapy unless it, uh, it was actually somebody told me, Jason, your friends and family are there to be your friends and family. When it comes to professional help, you don't go to friends and family. Um, and so even though it's been uh, nine and a half years since my accident, I'm still speaking to a social worker every month. Yeah. Therapy. I used to go to therapy quite a bit until they kept graduating me. And I'm like, no, I, I feel like I can keep going. Yeah. <laughs> no, you're good. <laughs> you're done. And I'm like, no. But I'm That's not. awesome. Yeah. I was just wondering if you could share your thoughts about how like this kind of perfectionism in today's society can impact our ability to be loving to ourselves. It definitely has impacted, it not only impacts our ability to be loving to ourselves, but to the extent that it is, at least for me, a contributing factor to 
the development and continuance of anxiety and depression. And I realized that when I um, moved to Vancouver to take a year off to focus on my healing. So I had more time to reflect. Mm -hmm. And I remember it was November 2015 and it was, you know, gray rainy days November so I was already kind of feeling down and I was feeling depressed and I started journaling all the reasons why I was feeling how I was feeling and I had this aha moment and it was this aha this insight that oh my gosh because my worthiness is in this perfectionism this high achiever in you know I was doing a lot of keynote talks my perfectionism was so up there that if I didn't have a lineup of at least 10 people coming up to talk to me to say how I was amazing, I would get depressed. If I only had maybe like three or four people and no one said amazing, but they said, you're right, I would start getting depressed. So my standards were, I need people saying I'm amazing and I need a long lineup of people. And that for me reflected a perfectionism. So so everything I did in terms of work, whether it's a workshop, a talk, a podcast interview, <laughs> I would get so anxious. So I would have anxiety weeks before to prepare so that it will be perfect. So the anxiety would always be before the thing I'm doing so I can be perfect. And then the depression would start after that event or workshop or project or whatever it is and if it wasn't that high level of feedback of people saying you were amazing from 90 percent of the people in the room then i would go into depression with you know just ruminating on just focusing on, on the one negative thing or the one thing that wasn't said and totally disregarding all the positive things that were said so that was my pattern with my career there is this anxiety that got worse and worse that drove me to um, not listen to my body and just keep working, working, working so that I can have perfection. And then if I didn't get the perfect, the perfect feedback and the perfect outcome, then it would be, I'd be depressed after. Mm -hmm. And that was a big wake up call for me. It was like, wow, I have no self love. My love is based on when I'm perfect, which is never. Yeah. And that's why I don't have any love. Yeah. And, uh, and then so that aha moment was so, like oh, like the light bulb went off that I wrote a, a contract and I looked out the window and I looked at the mountains. There were three mountains from my room in Vancouver and I proclaimed to them and I said, from this moment on, my worth, my worthiness, my worthiness of my own love and respect is going to be unconditional, no longer conditional upon, you know, doing and being perfect and achieving and getting perfect feedback from people. Because I was angry at myself. I was like, I can't believe that I've been doing this to myself all these years. But it was a good anger. It was an anger to see oh, for sure. that. You know, it was, yeah, yeah, as it was, you mentioned in your book, that it, what you realize is that anger came from love. Yeah. That, that yeah. anger was really a reflection of love, which I thought was so, so powerful. And the other powerful insight is we do this to ourselves even in doing these podcasts, when you don't ask the right questions and you think back and you're like, oh, I should have been more articulate. <laughs> and especially as a podcaster, it's, I commend you for the bravery to be real and honest. And 
when I, I remember when I started recording my first meditation CDs, I was inspired by John Kabat-Zinn, who in his CDs purposely did not redo his mistakes. Wow. So he fumbled <laughs> in some of his audio. I know that like, John Kabat-Zinn has fumbled in his audio meditation, but he kept it to make the point that we can accept our humanness. Yeah. One of the things I loved about your book is you started asking yourself, Mm -hmm. How am I shaping my experience this moment through judgment? Mm -hmm. I want to know how asking this question of yourself shapes your relationship to judgment. Mm -hmm. There's this saying I learned from the MBSR program, don't judge your judgments. Oh. And that is, I love it. <laughs> Lovely. I know. There you go. So that's the relationship. Yeah, so now sure. when I teach it, because, you know, in the beginning, it always be like, oh, I'm such a bad person. Man, I'm crazy that I'm thinking these thoughts. And, you know, it's natural. And then the more aware we become, right? The more we look in the mirror, the more we, we become aware of thoughts that are just like, wow, that is just so judgmental. I'm glad no one can read my mind. <laughs> read my thoughts, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For so, sure. Yeah, yeah. So now I actually learn to laugh at my mind, laugh at the judgments. And really, it just comes back to that is don't judge your judgments. So my relationship with it is uh, a, a mindful one where I accept judgments. And it's also an accepting one in that I know that it is part of being human. Every human being judges. And so that just makes it easier to know that, you know, it's like, okay, I'm not that unique. I'm not that special that I've got more judgments than other people. Yeah. <laughs> But so because true. I know how they're, like, as you said, like, judgments really are the foundation of perfectionism, right? And then that perfectionism can feed, uh, I think, depression and anxiety. Um, that being said, my relationship, even though it's a mindful, accepting one, is still a vigilant one. And it, a, a vigilant in the sense of you really got to beware, and watch it because it could ruin your life. So, you know, so there's that lightness of be curious with it, accept it. I can be, you know, joke around with myself when I mm -hmm. catch it, but it's still vigilant where it's like, I am watching you <laughs> like a guard <laughs> dog so that you don't come into my house and ruin my life. <laughs> yeah, for sure. You know, I say it can kind of mushroom. Uh, one of the things I'm kind of uh, currently navigating through is the thought of, I don't have to believe everything I think. Oh, I love I don't that. remember. I don't know who said it. I'm sure so there's some wonderful, like, really know, wise person. I wish that person. I don't know. I, you know what? I'll have to look it up and see. And, you tell you know. me because I've seen yeah. that on postcards. I've seen it. I don't it know who it is. Uh, but yeah, I'll take a look and see. And then I'll email you who, who would have said it. I don't Thank really you. know. Yeah, no yeah. don't believe everything you think. And then another thing that, uh, again, I don't know who said this, but... I get maybe this is one of those universal things that comes to everyone's consciousness, but not all thoughts are always facts. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's what? Right. No, everything I think is a fact. Come on, <laughs> right? Like that's how I go about the world. Like, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. And especially that my thought is somehow I have the. I know the fact, right? Like I have the, I've cornered the market on facts and therefore yeah. my fact is better than your fact. I know. You know, it really bothers me that one of the things that annoys me whenever 
so my fiance, I love him. He's great. But he always calls me out when I say something. And he'll say, is that fact? <laughs> and in my mind, I was like, oh, my God, I just hate it. But it's true, right? It's yeah. like some people just be like, is that fact what you're saying? I think you should just go around saying, it's Jay's a fact. <laughs> that should be your this is Jay's a fact. Jay's a fact. Well, in today's world where we have kind of, you know, people have their own truth. Right? Yeah, it's Jace of fake news, okay? Yeah, Jace of fake news. <laughs> um, I was reading in the Globe and Mail that about 85,000 people right now are living with a spinal cord injury in Canada. In your book, you talk about, as you kind of embark on this journey towards rehabilitation, uh, you stated that you began accepting your body as it was, as a newly renovated home. And I was so struck by that. I was wondering what helped you kind of reach that level of self-acceptance. Well, so two things I'll mention. The first one, and they're both related to the eight-week mindfulness-based stress reduction program. Mm -hmm. The first thing is actually what I learned when I took the course as a patient, but also then what we would teach our, our, like my future patient. And in session one, the theme of that session is as long as you're alive, there's always more right than wrong. Wow. So, so yeah, so I, I, I've taught this course, you know, almost 30 times now. Mm-hmm. And just to always come back to that reminder, because people are coming to this course with chronic pain, anxiety, depression. They're coming because they have a quote unquote problem. There's something wrong. And so I think it's fabulous that John Kabat-Zinn specifically designed this curriculum. So on the first day, that's the first message you get. So that seed was planted in me when I took the course a year after my accident. And then the second thing that we also learn in the course is that acceptance actually helps you get to where you want to go. John Kabat-Zinn says to accept doesn't mean you have to like or love. It simply means you're acknowledging the reality of what is. So I like that definition because if I'm not accepting the reality of what is, then I'm in denial and I don't want to be in denial. (laughs) right you know it doesn't have a good ring to it so I want to be in reality so I will acknowledge reality even if I don't like the fact that I can't run or walk or snowboard I don't like it but me accepting my physical disability simply means I'm acknowledging the reality of what is today and the biggest thing that helps with acceptance is I'm not accepting this forever I don't want to accept this for the rest of my life that I'm never going to walk again barefoot I accept it today, maybe even for this week, maybe even the next month. But I know that for me to walk barefoot again one day, maybe go snowboarding again one day, or just walk inside my house barefoot to get to where I want to go, if I accept where I am now, that keeps my nervous system in a state of relaxation, as opposed to when I judge and resist, then I go into fight or flight, and healing doesn't happen in fight or flight. So because I want to change, I'm going to accept today. Definitely. Paul Gilbert talks about kind of the three drives. He talks about how we tend to live in the drive of achievement, the constantly doing, or the drive of survival, and we never really get to that drive of soothing, kind of like resting, relaxing. Mm -hmm. And that's where the healing happens, right? Mm -hmm. But not when we're living in the hormones of stress. Um, Mm -hmm. So, yeah, thank you. That's great. It also relates to kind of how you realize you create your own suffering. And I was a little Mm -hmm. bit struck because uh, I'm also familiar with kind of the compassion training 
And in that training, they talk about how everyone suffers and you kind of become comfortable with suffering. I was wondering how you think that that fits. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, that's a great question. And I'm, I'm thankful for this opportunity to share my opinion on that. When I am able to respond, what I find so fascinating is before I make an outward physical response, like a, an action where I'm moving my body, just the mindful observation, the mindful, curious, accepting, noting that, oh, I feel this, I'm thinking this, just that noting, research shows already elicits a physiological change in the body. That's where the, that simple mindful awareness already creates change. So that's, that is actually a response, which I just learned last year because I thought response was, was an actual action. So that's the first level of response. But then when it comes to then taking an action, doing a behavior, that's where I advocate for compassion to come in. What can I do? Maybe it's affectionate breathing. Maybe it's soothing touch. Maybe it's go take a warm bath. Maybe it's go outside for fresh air. So that for me is how the mindfulness and compassion fits when it comes to responding. But my favorite image for the relationship between mindfulness and compassion is that they're two wings of the bird. So a lot of people now are talking about mindfulness and how important it is, but it's just one wing of the bird. If you don't have a compassionate practice for yourself, then you really can't fly through life with grace and ease. And that's beautifully put because compassion does require action. It's not just the witnessing of the suffering, it's the desire to alleviate the suffering through mm -hmm. action, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. Yes. You talked in your book about courage, the courage needed in helping you become more loving and compassionate to yourself and using that courage to face your own suffering and to see the scarier corners of your being. Some of us are just caught in that fear. It's like we just feel like we don't have the courage to do that. So I was just wondering what helped you muster the courage to face mm -hmm. what scared mm -hmm. you? Very interestingly, before the accident happened, somebody gave me a card. And on the card, like this was just like a week before, she um, gave me a card and she wrote a passage from the Bible, Romans 5.3.5. It says, suffering produces perseverance perseverance, character, and character hope. That really stuck with me. And I've kept that in my wallet for the last 10 years. Mm -hmm. And that kind of led this wise awareness or belief that the path of suffering in the end will, you know, it'll be dark mm -hmm. in the beginning, but the end, it's bright, it's hope. So there's this journey. Okay, so that led the way. But then also, I was raised Catholic, and even though my spirituality has changed over the years with learning from Buddha and then being introduced mm -hmm. to shamanism, I, I'm, I'm thankful for my Catholic upbringing just because it had me believing in a God that loves me. So I knew for a long time that, like in those dark moments of suffering, I would always come back to this belief that God didn't create me so I could suffer. Like, that's just not the God I believe in or like the universe or creator would it put me here so I could suffer. Like I at least had a belief that I was here because I'm loved. And so all of this pain and suffering, this darkness 
is so I can be better, so I can be stronger. So, you know, there's all this purpose. So, so I really like the image of the, the metaphor I tell people about my, my journey, especially the journey of self-discovery and healing and transformation. You're going through a dark cave in this, in this cave. It's just, you know, there's mirrors all around and you're seeing yourself, dark parts of yourself and it's cold and you're lonely, you're alone. But it, there, it's, it's a cave with light at the end of the tunnel. And so just this belief, this faith that it's a journey that has dark moments, but at the end, there is light. And that light will represent, you know, this place where I'm stronger, wiser, more compassionate. Um, yeah, it's just this journey of growth. And so that's kind of my... Uh, belief that I think has really given me the courage to be like all right whenever I go into therapy or I go do body work and you know usually it's kind of scary because you're going to go dig deep and something painful is going to come up I'm always like let's do this let's let's feel the pain let's go and cry and let's discover more stuff even if it's not mine it's my ancestors like I'm down to go for it because I know on the other side of that pain is going to be lightness and wisdom and transformation it's yeah, so it's definitely seeing the other side of the dark pain. Yeah, and the other thing that I found too in my own journey is really that sometimes the monsters that we imagine are way bigger than they really are. So we are so afraid of facing kind of those scary corners of our, of our being. But when we do, the moments that I've kind of stepped forward and really faced things, the moment I've become aware of my own power and realized that what I was really afraid of was fear. Yeah, yeah, I can, that resonates with me too. So one of my favorite parts of your book um, was uh, the moment that you stated, I am unconditionally worthy of my own compassion. To me, I sat with it a little while, like after I read that line, I just kind of had to put it down. I think it caused me to realize just how the feelings of worth that I struggle with and uh, I mean, geez, if I don't feel I'm worthy of my own love and compassion, why would anyone else? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's so many people that I know that struggle with worth. I-, I was wondering how like worth impacted your ability to be loving and compassionate to yourself. It's interesting because I only started to know my worth that day. And that was actually the November cold day when I proclaimed to the mountains that <laughs> my worth is mm-hmm. unconditional. And again, that's an example of this aha moment, this insight, this light that I'm unconditionally worthy. It only came after I had the courage to be like, let's explore this depression. Why am I feeling this way? Like I had to go into the dark and cry and, you know, Mm -hmm. feel the physical pain. So, So that insight came after. And it's interesting because even though I did realize that my worth is unconditional, and I think that stems just from, you know, hearing a lot of, parents talk to their children who love their children no matter what, even if they make mistakes, you know, that seed was planted. I didn't really understand my unconditional worth though, until I did more of these prolonged retreats, which was required as an MBSR teacher, you have to do prolonged retreats. Even to do mindful self-compassion, we had to do some retreats. And Often during these retreats, I would, you know, we were meditating for you know, six, seven, 10 days. And I would have these very spiritual out-of-body experiences where I felt connected to God, creator, divine, oneness, source. 
And the more I felt that, the more I realized that I am more that. Like even though I'm a physical human being, there's so much of me that is this continuous loving presence from the moment I was conceived. And that is when I started to realize my worth because then I knew who I was. And on the very first training of um, mindfulness-based stress reduction, the very first day, first like half hour, they have you journaling, asking yourself, who am I? Who am I really? Who am I really, really? Who am I? And I knew what they were getting to, right? They're getting past mom, therapist, this, 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 that. And it's like, who are you really? And we've done this also, I think, in the mind of self-compassion is why are you here? Who are you? And so that who am I has always been this question. For me, my worth became so clear when I realized that I am a human being with this love that flows through me that flows through everyone with this conscious evolving love and once I knew without a doubt that that was in me and I was like man that does not deserve judgment yeah. <laughs> right if if you believe in God Allah or the source whatever it's like how can you judge that thing within you how can you disrespect that thing within you right so I think it's just been a beautiful journey of discovering my worth and why I feel like like I was meant to like share my stories because my last name, Sulit, in Tagalog, Philippine, the, the main dialect in Philippines, means worth it. So you go to the Philippines and you ah. buy like, a pack of bread and there's like the double pack. It's going to say the Sulit pack because you're getting your money's worth. Ah, wow. And I only discovered that three years ago. And I was, oh, like, wow. <laughs> I was like, funny, really funny. <laughs> the one yeah. thing I didn't know my whole life was my last name because I didn't know that I was worth it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And you are, yeah. It's so interesting to me, um, you know, you talk about having to go in through these journeys within, right, as part of your teacher training. And I think one of the biggest concerns that I think we have with today's society is the distractibility, right? Like we're taught to multitask and we have our phones. And so we're so busy looking out there and being distracted and looking outward. And then life goes, bam! <laughs> You have to look inward now, right? And so, yeah. and that bam could be illness or like my injury. Yeah, it could be anything. And I think that then it, it causes us to pause in our lives. And that's why I like the whole mindfulness based and even the compassion based trainings is that it brings us back to ourselves and checking in with ourselves and saying, okay, how are you doing? What do you need right now? Um, and the one thing that, you know, I know that people struggle with in the, in the self-compassion programs is that they think it can be sort of narcissistic. Mm. What I'm finding more and more is that really having compassion for ourselves helps us have compassion for others. You know, our oxygen mask is on. We can't be compassionate to others if we don't give to ourselves because that's how you get burnout, right? And so it's synergistically doing both uh, and understanding that everyone just wants the same things that we do. So not narcissistic at all. We can be more compassionate with others and we really struggle with extending that to ourselves. Yes. Yeah. I agree. Um, which is why I think, you know, um, in, in the book you talked about how children should be taught to love and trust themselves. And we are seeing more and more schools that are implementing kind of mindfulness-based interventions. But um, I, what I'm not seeing or haven't seen is really the shift to include compassion for self and others and self-love and love for others. Yeah, I really, I agree, especially 
when I took the first, when I took the mindful self-compassion course for myself, because I was going through anxiety, Mm -hmm. I was in a room with um, maybe 40 to 50 other people, majority women. And it went from maybe age 35 to 70, but majority were in their 50s and 60s. And for most of us, we were like, wow, Mm -hmm. I never learned this in my life. Like, we never knew how to tangibly give ourselves self-compassion. Like, what? There's tools, there's self-compassion practices, and we're majority of us were like, why didn't we learn this in elementary school? You know, I think about my parents' generation and their parents' generation, which is like, you know, what are you crying? I'll give you something to cry about. <laughs> And it wasn't, I mean, they were doing the best they could. It wasn't anything that they were taught. They thought that they were doing them a service by toughening them up. You know, they perceived for us to be kind of the victims of circumstance. I think that's kind of historically how people have been raised. I do think you are seeing that shift. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I do see it now too, which is awesome. So we're headed in the right direction. Absolutely. More podcasts like these. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, thank you. In the book, you mentioned feeling guilty for judging the Reiki master. Do you want to share a little bit about the story or is that possible? Yes. I was a student of medical Qigong and Chinese shamanic medicine. And we had a client on the table who was having pain. And so she is of Chinese descent. And what came up in the session, in a past life, she was a Japanese warrior who had raped women. And this Japanese warrior, its spirit had reincarnated several times and now was in her body. So that was one of her past lives. Mm -hmm. But because of guilt, it didn't feel like it deserved to breathe. And so that was manifesting physically in this uh, Chinese woman. She felt like she couldn't breathe fully. And there was a lack of self-worth and guilt. But what was very interesting is this client her grandmother was actually raped. Mm -hmm. And so here we have in the realm of past life, she was a Japanese warrior who raped, but yet in her lineage, her grandmother was raped. And she embodies both victim and villain. And what was interesting for me in that is, you know, all this whole past life thing is just so mysterious because, you know, am I reincarnating as a Filipino every lifetime? But based on that one woman, she reincarnated as a different um, ethnic culture. Mm -hmm. And so it was very humbling. So the lesson there was not only is true compassion humble because we've all been victims and villains, but it actually helped me to come to peace with a very big judgment that was affecting my life. Because during that year, this was just in 2015 or 16, was the first time that I learned about Canada's history with residential schools and what the British had done, the the government had done to the um, First Nations. And it resonated with me because Philippines for 400 years was colonized by Spain. So I had all this anger towards colonialists. And it got to a point where I'm walking around and I, when I heard, when I saw someone and they were British, immediately I hated them. And that went on for like a year where I hear a British person and then all of a sudden I'm like, oh, I was angry at their colonialism and what they've done. 
But when that medical qigong and shamanic medicine experience happened, it humbled me to know that, man, I must have been a Spanish colonizer in a past life. Who knows? Yeah. Right? Maybe I was a British colonizer in a past life. Who knows? And mm -hmm. so that really brought a humility, uh, like a bigger picture. But what's more interesting is I actually watched a play by um, Gabor Mate while I was living in Vancouver. Gabor Mate was actually acting in the play, and it's called The Damage is Done. And it was just because of the suffering that his parents went through with immigration had caused a lot of harm to him and his siblings so much that his brother committed suicide. Mm -hmm. There's one scene where Gabor Mate is in therapy and the therapist says to him, there are no victims or villains, only people in pain. And I think we really struggle with that, right? We tend to see our own pain, but don't understand that hurt people hurt people. And that yes. nobody that's whole and complete needs to hurt someone else. Yes. Yes. On page one or two, you talk about anger. And I wanted to talk about anger because we struggle with some emotions. Some emotions are, I would say, unwelcome. Mm -hmm. Talk about how that was the case for you in anger. Then you started seeing as a catalyst of change instead of something to suppress. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So of all the various emotions that you could repress in your body, for me, anger was the one I had repressed the most. And that's for, you know, all kinds of reasons. The main one being cultural and religion, you know, just be, be an obedient daughter. Yeah, just nod your head, say yes. And if you're angry, you keep it in. You just have to obey. And so I didn't realize I had any repressed emotions until after the accident because I was meeting all these different body workers who I'd, went, who I'd go to for physical healing not realizing that a lot of my physical symptoms were related to repressed emotions. Mm -hmm. And there was one body worker in particular who had worked with a lot of my anger and releasing it. She's the one who said, Jasa, anger is a catalyst. You have to remember all these major revolutions and changes that have happened in the world is because people rose up in anger. It's like, it's true. All of these big revolutions started with people being angry. And then as I started to do my training in medical Qigong, I then learned that the liver, this one organ processes both anger, so anger at others or anger at myself, irritation, frustration, but it also processes compassion and kindness. Meaning that, and, and the way they organize it in Chinese medicine is the kindness and compassion is innate and congenital. So we're born with it. So this, you know, the soul comes into the physical body with the ability to feel kind, compassion, but the anger, irritation, frustration, guilt, they call that acquired emotion, <laughs> meaning that the soul acquires it when you become human, right? It comes with a package of the human body, feeling these right. things. But if we don't express and release all of these angers, then that same liver cannot process compassion, kindness, because it can only process one thing at a time, right? If it's just you have all this stuck anger in it, no energy flowing, then that same energy is not there for the compassion kindness. And so I thought that, that for me really solidified the sense of, okay, on the other side of anger is compassion. Sometimes what I'm angry about is a reflection of my compassion. So if you hurt me, I'm angry and I need to honor that anger because that anger is a reflection of the fact that I care about myself so much 
that I need to make sure that you don't do that to me again because I love myself and I need to protect myself. So I'm going to tell you what mm -hmm. I, I'm going to tell you how I feel. And so that's been really only something I've started to learn to do in the last couple of years is how to express my anger as a way of honoring how much I love myself. I think that's beautifully put because you talked about before not judging judgment. And I think this is one of those things about not judging anger. Uh, as Neil Donald Walsh says, tell your truth, but with the goal of peace. You can stand in your truth and not make anybody wrong. I love that. Yeah. That makes me feel more motivated to, yeah. to, to express my anger. But it also changes the tone then and how we express our anger when you know at the end of the day, I want to be at peace with you. Yeah. When you talk about people like Martin Luther King who advocated for nonviolence, it's not that anger isn't okay. It's the, the way that you communicate your anger and frustration because it's a symptom of something that's not quite right. And the act that we take, communicating that still can lead to peace. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Thanks for sharing that. Now uh, I'll be expressing more of my anger. <laughs> more anger. You know, my social worker, she always told me, because, you know, having masks on for so long and not sharing my voice, it's like learning to speak a new language, right? It's like, oh. And she said, Jasa, you can say absolutely anything, anytime to anyone, as long as it's coming from your heart. So that's, that's right. kind of similar to the, yeah, for sure. the heart. There's a sense of coming with peace with others. Absolutely. And the other thing that I really uh, appreciate about your insights on anger is that you talked about integrating and meeting those aspects of yourself for healing, right? Like feeling mm -hmm. is healing. When we make certain emotions in ourselves wrong, mm -hmm. we're not really accepting all aspects of ourselves. You talk about all of these unwelcome emotions that now you are befriending and, you know, taking out of the closet and saying, you know, come on down. There's a lot of environments such as workplaces that make feelings really unwelcome. Mm -hmm. you know um and so i was thinking about your thoughts on spaces and places where feelings can be expressed and welcomed i've been hearing about this term safe space more and more in the last several years like i never heard about the term safe space mm -hmm. um i think that i i think maybe that started with um more people being conscious about creating safe spaces for the lgbtq community i think that's probably where i started hearing that term and then now we're hearing it more and more as people um, are growing in consciousness and are trying to heal and require that safe space. But my main opinion on safe space is it's all about the person, right? It's not about the physical space, like, oh, a beautiful clinical therapy room or a yoga studio that feels safe. It's, it's about the people in it. And number one, that space is created by the attention a person is giving to themselves and the people around them. And so this sense or this notion of safe space begins with each individual person creating safe space for themselves first. So let's say if I'm creating safe space for myself, you know, there's this intention to meet myself with mindfulness, curiosity, acceptance, non-judgment, and compassion compassion for my own suffering, the desire for me to feel better and for my suffering to be relieved, this acknowledging of my whole self, all of my human emotions with humility, as we said. And only then when I create this safe space to meet myself as I am with mindful self-compassion, then I can extend that to the people around me. So 
safe spaces aren't about the physical spaces so much as the person in that room who is facilitating what is happening in that room. And so, yeah, my main thing is if you want to go on creating safe space for others, start with yourself first. And then the more you work on your attention and being able to extend your attention beyond your body to every corner in a 300 square foot room to every corner of a thousand square foot room because wherever your attention goes energy flows and that palpability of your mindful self-compassion can be felt you can extend that safe space but it can't be extended if it's not created first with your physical self that's very well put in your book you talk about a compassionate presence that you felt from the men who transported you yeah yeah and it's so amazing some of the people that I know have such a loving presence and it's not anything they say or do. It's about just kind of how they interact with you and the attention they give you. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that compassionate presence? What, yeah. What so it was you? basically, I was admitted to, I was admitted straight to um, uh, ER. And then from ER, I had to be transported to the operating room. And so there's, I guess they call them, I don't know what they call the people who trans, the transporter, <laughs> I guess I'll call him. I don't remember the his transporter. name. He was the transporter. And just that journey from ER to OR and me expressing that I was in a lot of pain, just the way he acknowledged, I knew he knew I was in pain. He acknowledged my pain. And his kindness and his presence, the way he, the way he looked at me, like he looked at me so that like he shifted his body so that he could, I could look straight at him in the eyes. There's really something about the way a really compassionate, kind person, how they look at you, even the aura they give off. And it's funny because like you said, we were not in one physical space. We were going from point A to point B. Mm -hmm that safe space I felt was in his space. Mm -hmm. And it was just so amazing because I remember after my accident, I was asking around, I was like, who is that guy? Who is the, what was the name of the person who transported me? Like, you know, it wasn't asking, I didn't ask what was the nurse? Who was the doctor? Who was the, you know, like you know, find out? transporter. Did you find um, out? Actually, I think I did. I, I never found out his name, but I managed to ask a nurse to tell him. And then I think oh, okay. the thank you did get to him. Yeah. Yeah. Which is yeah. great. I mean, it's so amazing that sometimes it's these small, tiny things that make a difference, right? In this yeah. case, I mean, that, that brief moment has such a huge impact. I mean, admit it to your book. And back then I had no idea what this whole mindful self-compassion practice was about, but I will guarantee that he knows how to be with himself, if not himself, at least people like he was not uncomfortable with suffering like clearly you get a job transporting people from er to the operating room you have some level of comfort with suffering yeah it's, it's palpable i think that's what i can just say is when you can be with yourself it's not like he was disregarding or ignoring my suffering like i felt like wow you know what i'm going through mm -hmm. which is <laughs> important when you're providing there. healthcare yeah it's yeah. very important when you're providing healthcare. Yeah. yeah and it goes to kind of my next question about you talk about the interdependence of all things and how the importance of community mm -hmm. and how your community helped in your healing. Mm -hmm. um, so can you comment about that? Yeah. So, you know, of course, you know, my friends and family were there and I had community through joining Spinal Cord Injury Ontario. So that sense of community was great. 
but I, I'm specifically going to point out being in a community where people are healing. And so two specific communities I joined was a therapeutic writing group where we would, would meet every week for 12 weeks and we would journal and then we would share what we journaled as well as a mindfulness for chronic pain group. So that's special because people with chronic pain like me practicing mindfulness and having a hard time practicing mindfulness with chronic pain. But what stood out for me in those two communities was the healing that happens when we can express our human emotions without judgment and have it be witnessed. So for me to share what I'm really feeling without judgment and to have that witnessed and vice versa, to have other people sharing their emotions. So not only am I seeing myself in other people, they're seeing themselves in me. And so there's this sense of real connected interdependency, that sense of common humanity, which is part of mindful self-compassion. And I know with a lot of people who are going through tough times physically, emotionally, isolation is the worst when you feel alone. For me, what community brings is this ability to see ourselves in each other, which is pretty much namaste, right? I see myself in you, you see yourself in me. And that's what's beautiful about not just any community, but a community where we can all express and witness our human experiences without judgment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And can I share what you wrote in the book? There's an I in illness, but there's a we in wellness. I wish I could quote who said that too. Oh, it's beautiful. I'm <laughs> yeah. quoting you. You said it. <laughs> oh yeah, but I definitely didn't make that up. I learned that from somewhere. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, yeah. I wanted to know what's next for you. How do, how do people find out more about you? Yeah. So um, people can go on my website, jsasulit.com, but I'm more active actually daily on Instagram and my handle is jaisa.sulit. So J-A-I-S-A dot S-U-L-I-T. I'm actually moving away from doing MBSR and hopefully will teach my first mindful self-compassion course this 2020. My biggest passion this year, second to the baby that's coming in April. So that's the biggest thing is baby to come in April 2020 yeah. is I'm going to be launching a 12-week online program called the Sulit Strategy and it's called the Sulit Strategy because it's reflects a sense of worth and it's 12 weeks and in those 12 weeks in the first month they'll learn about mindfulness in the second month they'll learn about mindful self-compassion and then I'm taking all the best strategies I learned from MBSR and mindful self-compassion. Beautiful. And then the third month, they'll learn about um, energetic and shamanic medicine. And it's basically, at the end of the 12 weeks, women who suffer from chronic self-judgment, women like me, during that time when I had to write that letter to God and say, oh, change me, help me with my chronic self-judgment, yeah. will be able to learn a daily self-practice a daily self-care practice based on all of these tools on mindfulness, self-compassion, energy work, shamanism, to be able to connect deeper with their true self. Because the true self is that innate, compassionate, wise, understanding, kind, love that flows through everyone. But sometimes we just need a daily practice to help us reconnect with that place. So that's my, the Sulit strategy that I'm excited to launch sometime this 2020. That's beautiful. People should go check it out for sure. 
I am hoping that you can read one of your poems, uh, one of my favorites, which is called That Thing. Uh, oh. If I read it, I will probably cry. So um, I'm hoping that you is can my read it favorite thing. before we can wrap up, if you don't mind. It would be an honor. So this is called That Thing. Ah, the journey within. Of all paths taken, nothing has been more painful yet beautiful and worthwhile than the path to self-love. Why, oh why, has it been easier for me to show more love to others than to myself? But that thing, as I venture closer, closer to the space within, I feel that thing. Call it God, call it light, call it love, call it life. It's the force, it's the universe, it's that Thing. It's that thing that makes me feel that I am one, one with him, one with her, one with you, one with life. It's connecting to that thing that makes loving myself come so naturally. It's connecting to that thing that makes accepting myself unconditionally just the thing to do. How good it feels to finally be real, real two sides to the coin, this journey, this journey that has brought me to the depths of darkness, pain, reality, bringing me closer, closer to that thing, where when the seasons change and the tides seem too strong, it's that thing inside me, deep within, that is like a stable rock. It's where I find peace. It's where I find love. It's when I connect to that thing that instead of falling apart, life is falling into place. Instead of closing in, life is unfolding. And instead of resisting, life is just flowing. How complex this journey is, and yet so simple. It's as simple as breathing. It's with every breath, every inhale, and every exhale. In out. I connect. I connect to that thing. I connect to that thing within me and within you. In, out. We connect. We connect to that thing. That thing. Wow, it's just so powerful. Thank you, Jason, so much for sharing your story with us. And please go out and get Jason's book, Purpose and Paralysis, available on Amazon. And check out her 12-week sort strategy. Uh, we hope that you can join us again for another podcast in the future uh, and come share more of your story. Thank you so much, Jason. Thank you so much for everything you're doing. Thank Bye. you for having me.